Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're continuing our series on Charlie Kaufman. This is part four, the final part in our series on Charlie Kaufman. Today we're discussing Synecdoche, New York. Well, Caden Guitard is a man already dead. He, um, he lives in a half world between stasis and anti-stasis, and time is concentrated, chronology confused. You know, up until recently, he's, he's strived valiantly to make sense of his situation, but now we are... He's turned to stone. Okay. Sounds good. This is a postmodern meta-psychological surreal drama. Directed by Charlie Kaufman. The cast includes William Fillmore Toffman, Maxine Lund, Marilyn Monroe, Precog Agatha Lively, Sandy Furness, and Thomas Yates. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I watched it on Amazon. Excellent. All right. Well, let's begin our analysis of this film by recapping the events in our synopsis. Uh, Joey, go ahead. Joey began to wonder, in order to summarize Synecdoche, New York, a summary must be written, but where should it begin? Is the movie about a play within a play or a man falling deeper and deeper into his own mind, struggling to survive and losing parts of himself the whole way down or something else entirely? To synopsize Synecdoche, New York, Joey muses, would be to write himself into his synopsis, becoming a character in his own podcast, making himself available to scrutiny and criticism. But isn't that the nature of all podcasts? Isn't that what we've been doing all along? Benjamin reflects on the unusual nature of the synopsis. This is not just a list of what happened in the movie, but what it was like to watch it, to wonder if Caden Cotard's reality is truthful or not. But in order to do so, Joey must write the synopsis. He must sit at the computer and think of the next thing to say. He is typing this one-handed because the hound keeps nudging his arm for more pets. Joey wonders, what would the synopsis be? It has to be about the writing of the synopsis, which means it's about Joey wondering about writing the synopsis, which means it's about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about writing the synopsis, which means it's about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about writing the synopsis, which means it's about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about writing the synopsis, which means it's about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about Joey wondering about Joey wondering. Eventually, the layers become meaningless. We are so far down the synopsis hole, there is no up or down. Joey feels foolish and exhausted for even getting to this point and wishes someone else would finish the dang synopsis. Having secretly watched Joey's every move since he began writing the synopsis, Benjamin takes over as synopsis writer. I know what Joey would do, he thinks to himself. In order to properly emulate Joey writing the synopsis, Benjamin would need to acquire a dog. After all, who is Joey if not a writer that is constantly giving his hound pets? After driving to several dog shelters around town, Benjamin finally found a satisfactory pooch, and he sat down at his computer to write. This is a lie, he proclaimed to himself. Benjamin was in his podcast room on the second floor of his house, but Joey's house didn't even have a second floor. Benjamin quickly called up his friend in construction. After some time had passed, construction was complete. Benjamin's house had been completely remodeled to look exactly like Joey's. In the time that passed, Benjamin had grown older and had developed many health problems. 
I'm too tired, gasped the withering old Benjamin. I need someone to help me finish this synopsis. In Charlie Kaufman's thought-provoking masterpiece, Synecdoche, New York, the narrative weaves together various intricate themes that delve deep in the human condition. Though I may be Benjamin, let me channel my inner Joey to break down some of the key themes that make this film a true work of art. In Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman takes us on a surreal and introspective journey through the complexities of the human psyche. The film's themes resonate deeply, reminding us to grapple with our own existential questions and to appreciate the beauty and impermanence of life. Now, back to being Benjamin, or perhaps I should say Joey. Uh, There you have it. The synopsis for Synecdoche, New York. Yes. Just as you remember. Synopsis, Synecdoche. There's definitely some similarity there. There's sins everywhere, certainly. (laughs) Um, We'll begin our discussion by going over our pros and our cons. Joey, what did you like about Synecdoche, New York? This movie is dense with meaning, symbolism, and pathos. Philip Seymour Hoffman is just incredible. All our main players are so weird and sad. The recursion of the plays within plays is appropriately head-spinning. It gives you something to deeply consider. What about you? I agree. Philip Seymour Hoffman did his thing in this film. Just some of the... One of the things I like about Kaufman, his actors have just no regard for self-preservation. I know. Philip Seymour Hoffman just leaves it all out there. So I, I really appreciated that in his performance. I really liked the score. I, I thought it was very creative. This movie is funny in a lot of offbeat ways, almost just like so starkly depressing that you just have to laugh. And like you said, it's dense. There's lots of detail in this film, lots of meaning, meaning stacked on top of meaning and layered upon layers of meaning. Every single inch of your screen seemingly more meaningful than the last. And this film really, really respects its audience's intelligence. This movie is not going to slow down to make sure that you're keeping up. It is just going to plow forward towards its own end. And, uh, you know, even that is fitting when you think about the themes of this film. So it's really, (laughs) I I, I appreciate that. You know, it gives, they're giving us credit and we as the audience are going to do our best to keep up. And, you know, I think that this kind of goes with that, but it's just an ambitious film. They set out to try something tough here. Uh, Charlie Kaufman did. And, and I think uh, that is worthy of respect. So those are our pros. Let's move on to our cons. Joey, what did you not like about Synecdoche, New York? Um, this kind of uh, counters what I had just said, but there's so much to pick apart for this movie, but it isn't any fun to watch. <laughs> so it's like you want to watch it 10 times but you definitely won't be able to get through it 10 times because it's just not good for you to sit in this man's depression for so long um it's it's depressing and pathetic to a point where i think some of the jokes aren't funny anymore it just gets to a point where it's not even it's not even worth laughing because you're just like oh geez this is just the worst (laughs) even though it does go over the top quite a bit uh mostly filthy and it is the most filthy and gray film we've watched in our Kaufman series it is the most Kaufman 
of Kaufman movies we've done. Most Kaufman-esque <laughs> movie, which is appropriate since he's the director and writer this time. But nobody is tempering him. Nobody is holding him back in any way. And I think it's appropriate that we end our series here uh, with the most Kaufman Kaufman movie uh, because it. Um, we're sort of quitting while we're ahead, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie definitely featured peak Kaufman grime. Just oh yeah, just drizzled over those everything. doctors' offices. Yuck! Like, so unsanitary. Yuck! Yeah, um, some of the things I didn't like about this film. I don't agree with the message. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of what this movie is saying that is kind of bold and true. I don't find to be that true. Uh, you know, and maybe that's just my outlook on life, but I just fundamentally disagree with a lot of the, I think a lot of the messages that this movie is trying to put out there. It's not fun to watch, uh, for all its meaning and all its, uh, carefully curated details. I just, it was abysmal and it was, it was tough to get through. It made me feel icky and it was confusing. <laughs> yes. And I will admit that after doing like some deep dives and looking at other resources, there was a lot of stuff where I was like, oh, okay, that's actually really cool. But I don't think I ever got to the point where I changed my mind about some of these things. And, and I think that's a good place to kind of jump into our overall section. This movie is a rich tapestry of carefully curated connections between themes, references, and symbolism. This is the type of movie you could watch over and over and over again and still find new meaning even after the umpteenth viewing. The problem is, I don't really want to experience this movie over and over again. The first viewing was unsettling and made me feel gross. It wasn't so much that it was depressing... I genuinely did not like Caden, and his sad life did not make me feel bad for him. But after watching it, it felt like a gloomy cloud was hovering over me. I had to go to my box that I have mounted on the wall that says, break glass in case of gloomy cloud, and deploy my copy of Pitch Perfect just to set my vibes <laughs> back to their normal level. That's your go-to. It was What's funny, <laughs> what's funny is that I did the exact same thing, but for, like really, like af- I was watching this movie, I actually like immersed my mo- myself in this movie because I watched it, I started watching it on Tuesday and didn't finish it until Wednesday. And then I started watching it again on Wednesday, like from the very beginning, right after I finished it the first time. And then didn't finish it until today, Thursday. So I've been like sort of watching it for the last three days in a way. And at some point I was like, I, I know I should be like watching this more or doing some more with it. But I just can't do it anymore. I need to step <laughs> away. I need to do something else. So I watched uh, two episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and I played um, <laughs> the new Link game. What's it? Tears of the Kingdom. And I was like, this is much better. I'm having a much better time in my life and thinking about this movie. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me that you never paused it. Just somehow, when you oh, started yeah, watching it, it on Tuesday, going. it became Wednesday, when you, just in the blink of an eye. It might as well have been, honestly. <laughs> Which is something that I think is cool. You know, all the different ways that time is passing at the very beginning of the film, and how oh, that's yeah. kind of echoing in this idea that time is slipping through our fingers. Like, I think that's a cool effect, and I can, re- I can uh, respect that, even if I kind of don't... Uh, agree with kind of reveling in this idea that your life is uh, slipping, slipping away life. from you every moment. Did you did you see the calendar in the doctor's office? He's early in the movie. I think it's after he gets some. Um, I think he's at the ophthalmologist. Right? There's a calendar behind him that says March 2006. Yes, the movie came out in what 2008. Um, so it's uh, and then in the and then later 
Right. He says 17 years has passed, which, and you don't even know how much time has passed between the doctor's office and when he says that, right? But then you see, start seeing blimps in New York City. You're like, hold on. I think this is the distant future, actually. <laughs> like, we're, we've accelerated in like way past 2006 into some other time. Um, and it, we're so isolated within the film that we don't even see any of the future that Kaufman has imagined. Oh, yeah. Weird. I mean, we saw uh, just in that first like m- uh, part of the movie where um, you hear the radio and it's like the September 22nd or something. And then yeah. immediately it's Halloween and then it's like Christmas and uh, like times just and they don't even really mention it. Right. It kind of happens. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it, which, again, I think is clever. Uh, you know, it's cool to be able to to do that and kind of dangle it right in plain view but also not draw attention to it um you know i i'm glad we watched three other kaufman films before this one because i feel like i'm getting to know charlie as a writer and he loves to put himself in his films he has a lot of himself in this one he's a creative so of course our main character is a creative as well as our main character's ex-wife whom our main character idolizes they're both largely defined by their ability to create art and Kaufman is clearly obsessed with death that's clear to me even before going into this dreary film but this movie is all about death mainly about how death is inevitable but this movie is also about time like we've been saying you know how time is quickly slipping through our fingers faster and faster hurtling us towards you guessed it our inevitable death Nice. <laughs> Those things really tie together well here. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, I had this feeling the entire movie, I wanted the play to finally happen. Oh, geez. I'm sorry. I, I wanted there to be some sort of catharsis that the play would bring about that would make me understand all the weird stuff I had been watching. Like, I, I was waiting for it all to tie back, you know? And this is where I start getting into my interpretation because I've heard a lot of different interpretations. Not everybody agrees with each other on this, you know. Not everybody agrees. You know, (laughs) some people say it's the greatest movie ever made. Yeah, some people don't know. Some people think it's pretentious. You know, Uh, you know, I don't always agree with Roger Ebert, and I I don't always agree with uh, you know Cinema Sins, but I get along with everybody. And uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I think maybe the point that they're trying to get across with this film is that. There is no, maybe there is no point, you know, maybe the point is that in the end, there is no catharsis. Life is a series of random events. It starts off going, uh, you know, a little slow, but then it gets faster and faster. It makes less and less sense. And you feel like you should be building to something. But in the end, it all just ends just like it began with nothingness. And if that's what this movie is saying, then I guess I can see that based on what the movie shows us. But it doesn't make me like the movie or agree with the message. I've heard a lot of people praise this film for its truth and honesty and the ability to bravely say that we will all die unsatisfied and alone. And I just don't agree with that. I, I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) I like, um, this is clearly one person's vision, right? And what I struggle with for this movie is what I'm supposed to take away from it. In all, what I think Kaufman does a really good job of in all of his movies is, is presenting a philosophy that is obviously wrong, right? All of the characters in his stories have this idea of like what life is that is stated, you know, through their own 
like through their own worldview, through their own lips, which may or may not be what Kaufman agrees with or, or thinks of himself, but it's something that he's at least considered, right? But what he does is he puts himself enough at a distance, even though he's literally in his, his own movie sometimes, <laughs> including this one. Um, he is, um, he puts himself enough at a distance that the characters seem to go about life believing one thing when something else is obviously true. And it's and then at the end of the movie, they end up believing something completely different than what they believe in the first place, right? So it's hard to know where Kaufman actually falls on this, like, uh, you know, uh, we're all hurling till death and life is meaningless type thing, because it doesn't seem like Qatard is someone we should be uh, empathizing with too hard, too, like, too closely, right? He's someone that we should, like, connect with at a certain level, but his life is so miserable and awful that you can't help to... At a certain point, you have to start believing that it's his own fault. Yes. <laughs> you know? So it stops being... So it's like, can you actually believe anything that he's saying, right? Or is he simply presenting a point of view that is going to be refuted, or is refuted, I guess, by the events in the movie? The problem is that you don't have any counterexamples, right? Nobody else seems to, uh, to be able to thwart this feeling. Not really, you know? The other characters seem to have more fulfilling lives until they get too close to Qatard. And then they end up spiraling <laughs> into some sort of weird, like, uh, like uh, nonsense, you know? And then, they, and then they become truly miserable as people. The, the, they become the most miserable versions of themselves. But that's the thing, right? Is that you, like, like Qatard is um, exploring through this movie all the different lives he might have had and how those lives might have made him happier if he was doing something other than what he's doing right now. Which is a so, ridiculous way to live life. <laughs> Unbelievably self-destructive. Um, I, I want to play uh, this monologue that we hear at the funeral. Everything is more complicated than you think. You only see a tenth of what is true. There are a million little strings attached to every choice you make. You can destroy your life every time you choose. But maybe you won't know for 20 years. And you may never ever trace it to its source. And you only get one chance to play it out. Just try and figure out your own divorce. And they say there is no fate, but there is. It's what you create. And even though the world goes on for eons and eons, you are only here for a fraction of a fraction of a second. Most of your time is spent being dead or not yet born, but while alive, you wait in vain, wasting years for a phone call or a letter or a look from someone or something to make it all right, and it never comes. Or it seems to, but it doesn't really. So you spend your time in vague regret or vaguer hope that something good will come along, something to make you feel connected, something to make you feel whole, something to make you feel loved. And the truth is, I feel so angry. And the truth is, I feel so fucking sad. And the truth is, I've felt so fucking hurt for so fucking long, and for just as long, I've been pretending I'm okay, just to get along, just for... I don't know why. Maybe because no one wants to hear about my misery. Because they have their own. 
Well, fuck everybody. Amen. While I do agree with uh, going on a monologue while you have like kind of a gospel <laughs> going on I mean, in the background. I mean, to have a priest say this is just like, that's pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> but I don't agree with his evaluation of existence. He's, he's speaking like he's somebody who has depression or some sort of like debilitating anxiety constantly thinking of life in the worst possible terms he literally says try figuring your divorce out like the, the like assumption there is that we are all divorced you know yes. like <laughs> it, instead of valuing what precious little time we have on this earth instead he postulates that we wait the entire time for some sort of external force to come to us to complete us but it never does um projection much <laughs> like that's just you dude like that's like you i'm not listening to this and be like wow that's so true i'm like th- wrong like i like you were saying before i mean maybe the whole point here is to put out a bad ideology to kind of satirize it or lampoon it but i, I just don't see anybody where is Donald Kaufman in this film right. to come in and yes. show us that this isn't actually right and that you can easily live a better life by uh, changing your point of view. You know, uh, this movie just says that life sucks and it's going to suck the entire time. Uh, like, but I disagree. You have to make your own meaning. You have to decide that this life is worth living and then go live it to the fullest. Will it be hard? Yes, guaranteed. Will it be worth it? Maybe. But definitely not if you don't even try. I needed, I needed Donald Kaufman to come in and tell Caden he's wrong and that life is worth living even if you never create the greatest piece of art that mankind has ever seen. I, okay, so what, what's going on with this? Well, you could describe this, this uh, priest's monologue as existential nihilism. Um, you know, this is a... This is a form of existentialism that I think if you follow like an existentialist like logic, you end up at this point at some point in your life. But the ultimate conclusion of existentialism is optimism, is what, exactly what you're describing. It is everything that he's saying is right up to a point, up to the point where he says that like uh, you're waiting for a sign and it never comes, right? after that he's like and then like there's no point in doing anything no the the point is that you interpret those signs however you like right whatever comes to you is a sign and you can imagine that they don't exist or you can uh imagine that they do exist and you can say oh i this is i'm i i didn't look i wasn't looking for this to happen to me but now this is coming to my life and now it makes me think about something and now i can have the ability to change my life in, in this way without having to and, and then the, the ultimate power is recognizing that you are doing that to yourself that sign came from within you simply assigned meaning to something that didn't have meaning attached to it at all and in fact you can create signs for yourself anytime and you never have to worry about uh waiting for something to happen because every day is a new opportunity for you to be a different person or a better person or the person that you want to be. So it stops being this like, um, so it stops being this thing that traps you and instead becomes this incredibly freeing thing, which ultimately has its own issues. But that's not where we're at. 
here, where we're at here is the nihilism portion of existentialism, of the, uh, your, your life is, is meaningless, and therefore there's no point in anything, right? I don't understand this exactly, because if we go backwards in time through our Kaufman series, right, the opposite conclusion is reached by almost every other character um, in Kaufman's stories, right? It is when there's no one else there, when it's, when it's Caden in his own damn head, that we end up at this point, right? When he is uh, unable to find an ending to his play and instead continues to drill deeper and deeper and deeper inside his own mind, that he ends up at a point of pure nihilism, which is appropriate. It's, that's, that's, that's what happens if you are isolated to the, and compartmentalized to the point where no one exists except for you. But it's, I guess my, what I'm missing is the, the po- play, like the place where they say this is wrong, right? Exactly. It just no, keeps I agree on with you. I agree going with that too. and showing it to us. And it's like, okay, now what do we do with right. this? You know? I, I completely agree. And I, so I don't know where to take this from, right? Am I supposed to bring in my own external validation here? Or am I supposed, or is Kaufman's nihilism so overwhelming, right? That it, that it overtakes the entire screenplay and stop and it stops being about anything other than that i don't know it feels like um it feels like uh an irresponsible way to end your to end your movie if that's ultimately your like message you know it's like well then how did you do this exactly <laughs> if if nothing <laughs> matters then how did you make this movie <laughs> yeah yeah it, uh, almost an irresponsible way for us to end our series <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I'm disappointed because so many people love this movie and I just don't. You know, yeah. this is up there with Citizen Kane and Vertigo as far as like cinema freaks going on the internet to say that this is their first their favorite movie, the best movie in history. But I just can't agree. I, I think it's cool that there's all this meaning and stuff uh that can be explained from this movie, and I, I do think we should discuss that. Uh, but even after exploring those things, I don't feel enlightened by this film. I feel dirty. I feel tired. <laughs> I feel like I have to go live life even harder to uh, to kind of reject this movie, which <laughs> should not be a credit to the film. It didn't make me do that. That's how I react to negative situations. Okay, it sounds like it did. It sounds like it did. All right, I'm not going to give. <laughs> it sounds that like to you it. were like no. Sounds like you. The message you took away was that Qatar is living in the incorrect life and that you should be living your life differently. That's which how is I- ultimately. <laughs> Which is ultimately the lesson of, of Death of a Salesman, which is what this movie is really about. So, <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't have to like it, okay? That's how I react to negative situations is I go do something good. So, um, that, And good. I didn't That's learn healthy. that from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you brought up Vertigo because this, is, this movie reminds me so much of Vertigo. Vertigo has this strange twisting structure. It pretends to be things it's not. It's also about its creator in a way that's unbelievably honest. The first time I watched Vertigo, I really didn't like it. But then I discovered it's considered one of the greatest movies ever made. So I gave it another shot. Mm. Syndectony in New York has a strange twisting structure. It pretends to be a movie about making a play, but it's not. It's about its creator in a truly disturbing way. The first time I watched Syndectony, I was put off by it. But then I discovered it's considered one of the greatest movies ever made. So I took a second. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things to dive into. I want to start with Caden. Um, as my kind of jumping off point. Um, uh, me, before I do that, the way I would describe this movie is, you know those transparency sheet things that you used to have in like middle school and elementary school that you're, like, your teacher would write on them? It's like a clear piece of plastic oh, yeah. that they would put on like the projector. The overhead and, you know, like, projector. Project on the screen. 
Yeah. So this movie is like a bunch of those transparency sheets with a like a whole script written on it <laughs> stacked on top of each other. <laughs> and each one is its own thing, right? By itself. Right. But if you look at it, when they're all stacked on top of each other, it looks like nothing. It's just a big opaque piece of like black. <laughs> and it's like, okay. If you, if you peel away one piece, you're like, oh, wow, this is interesting. This is an interesting piece of this. But you can't look at it. And some of them like, you know, work together. But you can't look at it all at once. You have to kind of take it in, in chunks, I think, which is kind of how I'm trying to view this movie. Okay, I see that. So, I can see that. So Caden is brought to life by the incredibly talented Philip Seymour Hoffman. You already said everything I wanted to say about him. He's a miserable person that I find repulsive, but I still f- have a lot of sympathy for him. He's constantly dying. He says at the 35 minute mark, I think I'm dying. This is even before he gets the MacArthur Grant and he really starts to deteriorate. It's really funny watching the movie a second time and seeing how healthy he looks because at the beginning of the movie, he looks terrible. When you watch the first <laughs> time, you're like, wow, this guy, how old is this guy? Is he in his 60s? No, 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 that's not right. And then as the movie goes on, he gets older and older and more and more decrepit. You're like, how old is this guy again? <laughs> then when you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh man, he looks great actually compared to how he looks at the end of the movie. He's doing, he's doing wonderful. So it's, it's, it's just all a matter of perspective. He loses his family in this really bizarre way. His daughter dies young, believing he abused her. He starts a new family, but never accepts them as real. He screws up his relationships with basically everyone, and he seems helpless against it. He's just so sad, so unsure. It's just horrible to watch him live his life. But his genius is never in question. From a distance, people admire him greatly. I think the unnamed play at the center of the plot is a brilliant idea, even if it makes no sense as a play. He's really trying, and even though he doesn't really know where he's going, he's not going to let that stop him. But he has no problem finding people to uh, be a part of his production, even though it takes decades. Very few people quit. More can always be brought in, and it seems like other people see his vision and want to be a part of it, even though it's clearly insane. I'm reminded of uh, Frank. Do you remember that movie? Yes. But uh, with Michael Fassberger, Michael yeah, Fassbender, Mas- Michael Fassberger, <laughs> Fassberger. <laughs> Michael Fassberger is the guy who delivers my sandwiches for Durga. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael Fassbender is wearing this thing on his head, that, like a paper mache like head, um, and he's wearing it all the time. And he's in this band, and our main character, played by Donald Gleason, right? He uh, becomes obsessed with this band and wants to be, become a part of it, and ends up like dedicating all of his time and money toward making this band a success, never recognizing that Frank has some sort of clear mental illness and that he's just perpetuating that and putting it on stage for people to make fun of uh, without recognizing that like that he's fetishizing this mental illness, right? The same thing is sort of true about Qatar, right? He's In some ways, he's begging people for help. And this creation that he's making he's asking everyone to stop him <laughs> like please stop me from doing this this is i'm killing myself in this process but no but everyone's trying to like stand at a distance everyone's like this guy's a genius this guy's amazing this guy like you know there's we, there's no point in even questioning him he clearly knows everything that's going on he tells everyone he, he can think of that he has no idea what he's doing but no one listens to him they're like nah you'll figure it out oh no it's it's whatever you're doing it's great and eventually it's going to be brilliant and everyone's going to love it but when, as soon as they get close enough to him they're like oh Ugh, this guy, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> this guy is, uh, he smells weird and is, he can't cry correctly. Like it's all, it's all very uh, off-putting. So it's this like fetishization of this mental illness that's represented by Qatar's uh, like inability to live a life that is anything other than um, sad and lonely, right? 
he he's sort of defined by the fact that he is losing things constantly. His real life is dedicated to three things, getting rejected by beautiful women, getting horribly sick, and attending the funerals of his loved ones. Um, and so it's like, it's just this terrible existence that he lives in that he cannot seem to escape from. And I, I just think that's, it's fascinating to see that as a writer, right? To see that as a, uh, to see that as a creative person and wonder uh, how much of your own like self, um, how much of your own self-loathing is making it into your projects? You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, I don't know, just, it is really bizarre. I mean, it makes sense that the people closest to him are the ones that loathe him the most. And then the people who are kind of on the periphery see him as this genius. Like remember when he was leaving the play and he was talking about how people in the audience were crying, like his, the rendition yes. of death of a salesman is so good. But Adele is like, it has none of you in it. it, it you're just putting on a play someone else wrote. And his dad is like, why were there young people in it? Like he didn't understand <laughs> it either. And it kind of, yeah, they don't like, seem to care at all. They don't yeah. even stand up during the standing ovation. <laughs> Everyone else does. They just, they don't, yeah, which is like good, kind of an example of that. Like so depressing that it's funny. It's like, okay i guess like, yeah really can you imagine really? not like you would go standing, that far even if you weren't trying to make a point like if you're just at some normal play and you just did like <laughs> yeah exactly so rude well okay so and rude. the other thing too is his daughter dies young believing he abused her she didn't just believe that she believed he left to, to go have anal sex with eric like <laughs> what was that scene dude that was the most insane thing where i like it was it was the scene that made me think i'm like i'm watching like they're making fun of me the the movie is being like haha i made you watch this so like do you did you get anything out of that his scene where oh, yeah, he's dude. with all okay. so first of all olive is maria right claims that olive is her project right and she is dying because the tattoos are killing her. They're like infected or something. And like over a long period of time dying. And the tattoos are also dying. It's this, it's this like really sick piece of art. You know what I mean? Where she's, tat- she's uh, making a representation of a flower of youth and then how that flower is dying. And it also kills the canvas as it dies. It's like a living piece of art on a person that kills them as the art progresses. Right? Like that's, like that was the I feel like that was the point of Maria's like project of Olive was to create her into a piece of art that would eventually die because she's a piece of art. Um, and then the other thing, wait, but what is the bigger is that, message there? Is it like saying that youth dies? Like, I think it's the I think it's the, maybe the self destructive nature of art, perhaps right. The, the fact that if you put yourself into something, that you end up dying from it, or you end up becoming. Uh, so in, if you become so engrossed in your own project that when it uh, is run its course, you also run your course because you have nothing left. You put everything into it and you're empty at the end, which is what Caden says about his own play, right? No matter what happens to this project, I will be dying, right? It, it, and the project ends when he dies. Yeah, but it's like there's plenty of great artists that d- just are fine, you know, <laughs> like who just make something right, epic well, and then they're well, like, yeah, I'm just Yeah, chilling. but that's not the point, right? The point is that like the art itself is its own living thing that is has a life and death, right? Okay, so because uh, one of the connections I saw with Olive is like her connection to plants. Her name is Olive. Right. And then she's constantly wearing green, like the bathroom she's in when you first meet her. She 
poops green uh and also uh, like the wallpaper is covered in plants and there's all these connections like she's always plant adjacent um yeah so she's just supposed to represent a piece of art that she was like a project that was started by uh the collaboration between Caden <laughs> and adele adele and maria yeah i i think that she's like you know she's become this own like it's this tragedy of like she's become this twisted thing that's other than human you know she becomes like this this thing that Caden is chasing but can never attain um this thing that doesn't really like she doesn't hardly exist and at some point she is literally objectified because she's in this like like a porn booth or something you know um so it's like this um commodification of her life in a way and well okay so okay i'm starting to see that but and it could even be i guess you're, you're saying it's between adele and maria but obviously Caden is part of the creation of olive right so it could even yeah, be but like not the re- in a meaningful way because she she exists already we don't see her being born or anything he's like you know he's supposedly raising her but it's not like he's like spending a lot of time with her you know you see her zip up a jacket once and like try to explain pipes to her you know <laughs> he's not exactly he's not doting on her the same way that adele is right adele is wiping her ass and um you know making sure that, making her breakfast and all of that right the caden uh, is sort of ignoring her for a lot of it and then when he when he loses her he's trying to find her and reading her diary and everything but she's always out of reach she's always uh it, like you know someone else's thing and when Maria, when he meets Maria in Berlin, right, she said she's the one taking care of, 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 of uh, Olive. And Olive mentions Maria many times in her book, in her journal, about how she's a better father than Caden uh, ever was. So I, I, I don't think Caden plays, if he does play a role, it's a very, very small one. It's an instant, inst- uh, consequential one. Yeah. Despite him being the father, right? Doesn't really, it doesn't, uh, doesn't play any role in Olive's life, ultimately. Right. But I guess I'm trying to see what his relationship is to her as this kind of runaway dramatic project, right? Like if she is the art that he he, helped to start. She just represents another form of loss. This whole movie is about him losing pieces of himself, right? I'm surprised he didn't lose any limbs, but (laughs) honestly, he's, he's, uh, he's constantly losing parts of himself. He's going to the doctor and they're telling him he can't do something or that something's wrong with him or not wrong with him or whatever. And now he has this new problem that he has to deal with. And then he's constantly, People in his life are constantly just dying, right? And they're just out of the picture all of a sudden. And now he has to find a new way of coping with it. And the same thing is true for um, like Adele and Olive, right? Adele just ups and leaves. And now he has to deal with the fact that she's just gone. And then Olive um, just dies, right? And then that's just another part of himself that has uh, disappeared, that has been cut off of him. So it's like he's constantly, you know, what I think is weird is that he's not like he's not really obsessed with control as much as he is just trying to uh he's 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 really terrible at letting go. He's really afraid of like just um of of letting any peace like disappear and he's constantly trying to grasp at these things that are just not within his grasp. I think Olive at the beginning talking about her poop is also emblematic of Caden's own philosophy about his art. Because she says, I don't want to kill it. I don't want to flush it. What if it's alive? Her literal, literally her shit, she thinks might be worth something. And Caden thinks the same thing. He thinks that anything he thinks is worth something. And anything that comes out of him must be, must mean something or be worth something. Um, uh, Even though 
he lives this life of like tragedy and loss that uh, anyone who, who who even comes close to it realizes they don't want any part of. So anal sex with Eric is just insult to injury as his daughter. Wait, anal died. sex with Eric? No, anal sex with Eric represents his um his desire to relinquish control of his own life. He at the end of the movie he um becomes a character in his own play and be, takes immediate direction from the director of the play and doesn't do anything without her direction right um uh, when he sits down with hazel uh outside of the um outside of the uh the theater and she tells him that she's been reading this book right and she says something like oh i'm so stupid for not knowing this book and he says oh you're not stupid and then she gives him directions of what to say next and then later when they're about to have sex she commands him to get on his knees and beg for a kiss right this and then uh, the same thing happens with Olive, right? She gives him a command and tells him exactly what to say. The same thing is true at the end of the movie, where he becomes this person that doesn't have control over his own life. But I think specifically, I, I, what I, I was trying to get at is like, where did that come from? There was no like, there's just this lie that Maria told her. It is a lie, but maybe you can look at it from this, you know, there's this Jungian angle to this movie where, um, it's called the uh, anima and animus, where a man becomes conscious of his female component and a woman becomes conscious of her of his of her male component. This is from Wikipedia. They have a really good like section about how this movie is Jungian. And the um Caden's sexuality and Caden's own uh gender identity is constantly in question and in flux, right? So whether or not he is gay i i he never um gives an example of him being homosexual but he definitely gives suggestions that he might not be fully male or that he's he should be a a woman so you know there's 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 some sort of through line there where it's like hinting at something or um giving him this like uh element of his life that he never achieved right you may even look at it like this is another path that he may have taken that would have led to happiness that he never took. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> at least he's having anal sex, right? At least he would have been enjoying himself. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It was frustrating to me is like, these are all things about him, but it, it's just like, what if we did this to this guy because it would be really, really sad, you know? And it's like- That's also true though. That's also part of it, I think. It is really sad. Yeah, but who cares? This guy sucks. Like that's what like I I have trouble. It's like okay, well that sucks for him. He doesn't want to even control his own life. What a loser! Like get it together, Caden. Especially when you are this like supposed genius at like theater. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I I can't really argue with that with you on that one. I think that he I I think that he's ultimately supposed to be this example of what how how not to live. Right. In a similar way that Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman is an example of how not to live. Right. Hoping for something that never happens, essentially, eventually becoming convinced that he's better off dead than alive, which is how you might describe Caden. I saw a uh, like some commentary on the scene where he's talking to the actor in A Death of a Salesman. where He says, uh, you know, think about how, uh, you know, the, the actor who's playing. What's the character's name? Gary Loman. Uh, he says, uh, try to keep in mind that a young person playing Willie Loman thinks he's only pretending to be at the end of a life full of despair. But the tragedy is that we know that you, the young actor, will end up in this very place of desperation. 
Right. And it's like saying, it's like, hey, the, the, there's death in this play and you will also die as a human. And also right. the, the actors in this movie will die and you, the audience watching, will die. And it's like, okay, <laughs> very clever. Good one. Like you, so like amazingly, boldly true. Um, I don't know. It just makes you roll my eyes a little bit. I think that the casting of young actors in Death of a Salesman is a really interesting choice. I think that it makes a lot of sense for what he's talking about, because ultimately the decision to change your life does not have to come at the end of your life, right? You can recognize the path you're on long before that. And the reason why Death of a Salesman is such a renowned play, one that speaks to a lot of people, is because it speaks to this feeling of regret that many people have. And it doesn't matter what point of your life you're in, you can still sharply feel that sting of regret. But I agree with you that that saying that everyone's going to die and you know uh, you should be aware of that is not a useful or interesting thing to say. <laughs> in in Eternal Sunshine and in Adaptation, right, and in Being about John Malkovich, the idea of death is certainly present, but it is something that um, is ultimately contended with, right? It's something that is addressed and uh, railed against, or um, you know, we, 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 we seek to find meaning in life despite this inevitable conclusion, right? Whereas Caden uh, and his project only seek to uh, emphasize the tragedy of death without finding any sort of remedy or, you know, conclusion or uh, what's it? Catharsis. Um, catharsis uh, for that, right? Which, which is frustrating because we clearly found other routes through other movies that have given us great examples to say that there is none that ultimately will all feel this way is not a message that i think resonates with people very deeply as i think that ultimately it's something that some people may feel but ultimately it's kind of up to you whether or not you're going to believe that or not you know are you going to live your life full of regret? Become an old man full of regret, <laughs> as Ken Watanabe says in Deception? Or are you going to uh, accept the life, that, the path that you've chosen, you know, as the best that you could have chosen uh, for yourself? And um, uh, screw the other timelines. Uh, this is the, this is the best timeline because it's the only one that exists. Yeah, a little uh, you know connection. Allow me to kind of. Uh you know, give you the, the, the great details and the, the symbolism and the meaning. The title of the play, Death of a Salesman, contains the word death. So it kind of all comes together. Oh, here. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about Hazel. Um, the first time through, Hazel seems kind of pushy, and she's like a, she's like a homewrecker, right? She's like, like, what's she doing going after Caden? He's married. He has a kid. But once Adele leaves, it's clear that Caden has been completely abandoned by his wife. And he has an opportunity to start again, right? I don't feel nearly as... I feel much like better about Hazel the second time around, recognizing that, Kate, that she knew that Caden was in a loveless marriage long before she came into Caden's life. And... She really seems to like Caden and really wants to help him. He asks her, will you help me forget my troubles? And she clearly wants to provide that for him. But it doesn't work. Later, she says, I just thought this would change things, you know, which echoes what Adele said to the therapist about having Olive, right? They're sitting on the couch and she said, 
And uh, the therapist says, oh, well, you know, things changed. And Caden said, oh, definitely. And Adele says, not as much as I expected or not as much as I hoped, right? Caden is difficult to love, but not for a lack of trying on his part. He's just mired in worry and he can't enjoy anything. He can't be with someone because he's so stuck. Hazel hoped that her love would make him forget his troubles, and Caden does too, but he's far worse than it appears on the outside. No matter how many layers you pull back, he's just still miserable. No matter how deep you go into the play, you keep finding Caden again and again miserable. When Hazel, when Hazel comes back into Caden's life as an assistant, she's at a different point in her life. She is more like him, closer to death, full of despair. And after they sleep together as old people, she dies from the fire that was burning in her house. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the let's, fire? Let's talk about the fire. The fire, I think, is a symbolism of Hazel and Caden's relationship. When she starts to come on to Caden, at the exact same time she buys the house. And I think that these are supposed to be mirrored decisions. She decides to enter a relationship with Caden at the same time she decides to buy a house that is currently on fire. Both of these decisions are clearly, are clearly bad decisions, <laughs> ones that you should not do. But despite the promise of misery, there's still this opportunity here for life. Maybe it won't be as bad as you, ho- as you think, right? Her acceptance of Caden as a partner corresponds to her succumbing to the fire. By accepting Caden, she accepts the consequences of being with him, and the same is true of deciding to live in the house. Like that? I, I think that's something. Yeah, there's, there's something there. <laughs> I'll take something. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, one of the analyses I heard was that um, it, it kind of references this idea of the end is built into the beginning. Sure. And um, it, this is kind of like a freeze frame of the house. Like the house retains its final state throughout its entire existence as a way of like giving that to us visually. So the end is going to be that Hazel dies of uh, smoke inhalation in this house. But to like kind of give us that, like what that really means, this idea that some decision you make even 20 years ago could end up being your undoing. Uh, we get to see the house on fire when she buys it, right? Which I thought was kind sure. of interesting. Like that's like a, uh, it that definitely rings true to that idea that the beginning is built into the end. Or the end is yeah, built into the Yeah, I think that's beginning. really good. I think that's really good. I did find it to be the most frustrating non-explained thing in my first watch through, where I was like, are you kidding? They're not even going to explain that house being on fire. Why? <laughs> They're not going to do anything about the fire? <laughs> just, just gonna, you know, it's not even spreading that fast. Get a, get a bucket or something. There's just also this idea of kind of the, um, like, the difference in how much people obsess about their problems. Obviously, Caden is the king of obsessing about his problems. Uh, he's constantly finding his new health issues and uh, doesn't really uh, like take a break from doing that. When, and then we c- can contrast that with Adele, who just ignores her health problems. Uh, again, I didn't think of this myself. I saw it in an analysis, but somebody pointed out that the first thing we hear from Adele in the movie is a cough. Yeah, and then she yes. ends up dying of lung cancer. So she's, again, the end is built into the beginning. And she spends her life not caring about her health problems. She doesn't go see the doctor. She just goes on and ignores it. And she just lives her life. And uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's better. She and Caden uh, end in a very similar position to each other at the end of this film. I guess 
both being dead and uh, <laughs> you could almost see Hazel as living that way as well with her decision to live in the house. That's good. I, I, I think you're exactly right. Okay, what about Sammy? So Sammy is this like fantastical character. He isn't rooted in reality the, re- the way the rest of the characters are. He doesn't seem to have a life outside of Caden. He's been following him around for years, which is really funny um, the second time because you're like, wait, uh, there's this old guy just staring at him across the street like this is some sort of uh, like invasion of the body snatcher situation and then he's like sitting in the room while he and claire are having sex and he's like what is what, what is going on here Dude, and then he shows up and he's like in introduces he's himself. everywhere he's in the, he he's in the background of every scene almost like it's it's insane <laughs> like when they're at the uh funeral for claire's mom's funeral I didn't even notice this until the, like, I, I saw this on a YouTube video, but th- they start whispering to each other, and you Sammy's in the background, like, two pews back, leaning forward to listen to their conversation, and it's, like, so conspicuous when you're looking for it, but I totally missed it the first time. He's, uh, he's at the pool, like, the rooftop yes. pool area with um, Hazel and her husband, like, reading a book at, when Caden tries to kill himself. Yeah. Yeah, when they're like, out there sitting talking the about the book outside of like the theater, he's just behind a tree and just leaning out <laughs> from behind it. It's like, what? I didn't see him there. Like I, that was one of the things where I was like, that's hilarious. The the way that they're able to hide him in so many places. Uh, it's really funny. So, um, he's been following around for years and tends on portraying him as a more decisive and less tortured version of the director. In a way, he was born for the role. But Sammy doesn't have the health problems that Caden has. He's also much better to Hazel. As time goes on, it becomes less and less of a copy of Caden and more and more of his own character that ends up needing to be portrayed in the story. Despite his strange origins, he represents how reality cannot be kept from the production. As much as Caden attempts to capture reality, Sammy defies it. He and Hazel start a real relationship, which messes with the compartmentalization that Caden has constructed. Even his death is a successful suicide as opposed to Caden's <laughs> failed one. Okay, so that's why. <laughs> to, sh- to show his difference from Caden, I see. Yeah, of course. He, he's not Caden. He's something else, right? Uh, but he like, is emulating him in this, in this strange way. But he's like getting... It's almost like he's trying to get close to him to reap the rewards of being Caden that Caden can't seem to reap for himself. He, he, I'll tell you what he was. He was fantastic. I really enjoyed yes. Sammy. Uh, Tom Noonan did a great job in this role, and he really played the almost like the the studious actor who's like really working hard on the role. It's again another breakdown. I saw pointed out that um, the scene where they're portraying this argument that happened in their apartment, and um, it's right before Sammy asks for a timeout. Um, so that he can discuss kind of his role with Caden before he says time out he's actually writing in uh, like on a piece of paper and what he's doing there is he is Caden the previous day scripting out the argument right after it happened so he in character is writing the script for the role for him to his actor to play tomorrow it's like dang that's awesome like that's so detailed recursion Oh yeah, it's really freaking good. He, he he really makes it possible. You know what I mean? Like this, he's made this like, Kane has instru- constructed this impossible thing, right? And now he's decided that he's going to be a part of it. And how can he possibly find someone that's like as obsessed 
uh, as he is to do it. And only someone as fantastical as Sammy is able to like actually make it happen, which is so funny because it's just like, these people just exist. These people just like are out there and want to be a part of this, you know, and they don't even take that much convincing to like be, be involved. They just show up and are like, uh, I, I get what you're doing. This is fun. I, I want to be a part of this. It's, pro- it's part of why the play can never actually exist because it would never be able to right. live up to the expectations. I mean, one of my favorite things is right after he hires Sammy, the first thing we see him doing is Sammy is peering over the stall as Caden is wrapping yes. up in the bathroom. And it's almost like he gives him like a, like almost a, a studious nod. Like he's like, okay, I got that. You know, I, it's, I understood what just took place here and I'm, I'm real, I'm ready to use that in my own performance hilarious it's really it is really good okay but what about ellen the introduction of ellen late in the story is another part of the movie's multi-layered structure ellen is a real person she but she's not separate from caden the casting of ellen as a separate character shows the fractured nature of self and how caden lives many lives inside his one body and after a while ellen becomes more and more prominent in caden's life in fact it, it brings him closer than ever to the family that he lost. Eventually, Ellen takes over as Caden in the play, then the entire production, and then Caden's own life. Earlier in the movie, Caden talks about how he sometimes wonders if it would have been happier as a woman. Not the first time transgenderism is suggested as a solution in a, as a problem to a problem in a Charlie Coffin picture. As Ellen, he lives that fantasy, and he finds himself in a sort of peace. He loses all autonomy and becomes consumed by his play. There is a simplicity to Ellen. She cleans until there's nothing else to clean. Her goals are simple, but time-consuming. It's a life that Caden sort of believes he's already living, but it's unclear whether he actually is or not. Does fate exist in Syndectony, New York? I don't know. He definitely loves to clean. I kind of wish he I does had love to Caden clean. around. And it's crazy how clean he makes stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that basement <laughs> never looked the, like cleaner. It was oh my god, that was that was like it was so transformed. It was amazing. Um, yeah, I think the Ellen thing is really fascinating. Um, uh, he, when, uh, he calls Adele in Berlin and she like, doesn't recognize him at the, she says, Ellen, like she thinks he says this is, uh, it's Caden. She thinks he says Ellen. Um, and then, uh, also, uh, Ellen's, uh, you know, backstory or her like early memory with her mother appears in that um chemotherapy uh, commercial yes uh, <laughs> they're in there with him um uh, taking the drug to be happier or whatever yeah that was funny well also uh, when caden is having a seizure and calls 911 the operator uh says, says ma'am, ma'am? Right. <laughs> so i think this is such an interesting element of the story where he ends up like admitting that he has nothing left to do right and because Sammy is dead, he has no one to play him. And then this woman who's been playing Ellen, who is sort of, who's, who is a different version of him, right? Uh-huh. Shows up and says, I think I understand Caden. I think I can be Caden. And then she ends up directing portions of the play uh, within the play. And then she su- makes the suggestion that she takes over the play altogether. And then he becomes Ellen. So he ends up like following so deep into the production itself that he ends up becoming a part of it and then losing all control over his own life. But remember earlier in the movie, he says, he says he's going to give instructions to every person. He's going to pass them notes for them to 
And this is what's going to happen. This is what happened to them that day. And he says that I'm going to do the same thing to myself as if, you know, as my God uh, uh, gives to me. Right. And I think that um, this is such an like, it, so does he actually believe that God is scripting his life? Does he believe that there is a creator out there that is giving him instructions or giving or, 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 uh, you know, directing his life in such a way to give his life this specific outcome or, or, you know, uh, basically to see how he reacts the same way that he does to his actors. It's an interesting question. I, I, I'm not, it's not clear that he has in, he understands what that end would be. It's like, why would right. God do this to him? <laughs> right. But he seems to believe that there is some sort of purpose to it or something, right? That, that's what I, that's what I think is most fascinating about this is the process of creation as a element of self-discovery. I keep thinking, even though this movie has no religious imagery, I keep thinking of Caden as God. Why did God create humans? Was it because he was tired, lonely, and didn't know what else to do? (laughs) Um, There is this endless frustration with creation because it almost never turns out how you expect it to. I believe this is why Caden creates the play. He wants to create something so he can discover something about himself. When you make something, you can't help but put yourself into it. That creation is not you, but if it does reflect you, it contains your assumptions, your values, your voice. By observing something you created, you enter this feedback loop of self-discovery. What Caden is attempting to do is learn about himself while also making his life worthwhile. Just like Willie Loman, if Caden's life is of quiet desperation can be put on stage, it will mean something to someone, he hopes. Even, in, even a sad, pathetic life has meaning if it's on stage for others to learn from. What do you think about that? I, I, I guess if he ever put it on a stage. <laughs> well, 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 the intention is that he'll have a stage, right? Like, this is a play, right? It is a, even though he never has any idea of how to present it, he, it's still this play that he's putting on. And all, honestly, the only person that's watching the play is him, you know? He's the one sitting there at the director's table watching the events unfold and then seeming to wonder about them, right? Seeming to reflect on them, never changing them, but always like observing them again and again. Yeah. I kept on circling this idea of um, being understood constantly throughout the film. Caden is misunderstood. He'll say something and people hear something else. We just talked about people thinking that he's a woman, but even other things where uh, he's just talking to his doctors and he'll say something and they'll hear him wrong. And, uh, you know, when he talks to his therapist, the same kind of thing happens. And I I thought about, I I mean, I feel like this movie may be saying something about how, like, to create great art is to be understood. And, And, like, Adele is able to compel people with these little tiny paintings right and it doesn't have to be this huge production and he goes in the opposite direction right he goes big he wants to make art that's literally life-size but and, you know and there's clearly people who are interested and in, like join the project but to me it, it doesn't have any meaning at all like it's so like trying to emulate life that it loses that kind of um extra uh thing that we learn through the creation of something different through the like uh we see things through the lens of the artist and it's something new is gained as opposed to just literally trying to copy and paste life as closely as possible you there's not something new there i don't know i i, I completely agree with you yeah. i i that's what i think is ultimately the flaw in caden's design here is that he has no 
purpose toward this thing, but he's hoping that purpose will emerge from doing it, you know? And he thinks that for whatever reason, that reality is enough to give him meaning. And that if he's able to closely observe and replicate reality, it will create this meaning for him and he will understand his own life or somebody else's life or something, right? But ultimately, um, all he's doing is replicating nothing, you know? It's, the, 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 there is this meaninglessness at the center of it because it's not going anywhere and it's just doing itself and it just keeps doing it over and over again. I think that anybody else would recognize this as a dead end, right? The recursion is so similar to itself that it doesn't actually um, go anywhere, right? You're actually just going in a circle, even though it looks like you're going deeper. It, it may seem like you're like spiraling or something, you know, back to vertigo, but you are actually just ending up back where you started. You ever think about thinking about thinking <laughs> and how thinking about thinking about thinking is just thinking about thinking, right? You've, you've not actually made any progress in that regard. All you've done is circle back to the beginning. Right. And I even think that Adele is an example, like going back to what she's able to do, not only be regarded as this great artist, but she, I think she influences Caden's uh, transformation to Ellen because he uses Definitely. the painting that is supposedly of him to find a woman that looks like the painting and then switch lives with her. Right. And that yes. is, uh, you know, tr and if that ends up being who he really is, if he really is Ellen and he's been able to find himself through this art, then there's your truth. There's your uh, transcendent quality of, um, you know, uh, very authentic uh, artistic expression. Perhaps, you know, I, I, th I sometimes think that um, people that are like very introspective end up. Uh, taking the long route to simple truths. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's this uh, thing written in the Elle magazine uh, edition that features Adele, and it says, when I look, I see. When I see, I paint. It's that simple. Which is sort of a reflection of how Caden makes his play, right? He's creating something. He's making a play about what he experiences and what his life is about. In the same way that Adele simply is, is stating that she's only painting what she can observe. It's it's really creative, I think, to to go with the tiny um, canvas. When it, when we were first introduced to her art, it's she's like, oh, I can't go to your play. I have to send out two canvases tomorrow. And you see these comedically small crates that I she's. Know, I didn't notice that the first time. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, those crates are small too. I was like, dang, she really doesn't want to go to this play. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious dude um the other interesting thing i think about with Caden as god is how little control he seems to really want if he wanted control he would change the narrative of his life instead he painstakingly recreates his worst moments many authors describe the process of writing as just letting the characters do what they will Caden has embraced this philosophy so wholeheartedly that the characters start to take over the play itself okay um, I think we've done enough here. <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. <laughs>
Um, all right. Okay, well, I think that is going to bring us to our cool Easter egg section. And I want to tell you about kind of my experience with uh, researching this movie after watching it. So okay. there's a YouTube channel called YMS, which stands for Your Movie Sucks, that does an amazing, almost scene-by-scene breakdown of this film called The Genius of Synecdoche, New York. Each episode is about 20 minutes long, and it reveals some truly impressive details that Kaufman included in this film. Like a lot of the things I've even talked about today, of like d- details that I noticed, are because they're pointed out to me by YMS. All these tiny elements he includes in the background, little sounds, little images that reinforce his themes and make this film feel so incredibly planned out. Some of the things that YMS breaks down include his interpretation of ambiguous scenes, and sometimes it makes my eyes roll. Like, apparently, famously in the YMS community, the first episode he's breaking this down, he spends like a whole minute discussing the way that the title text for the, <laughs> the, um, the movie title, Next New York, that shows up un- like underneath the alarm clock, um, like the way that it fades away is like a metaphor for death. And it's like, no, that's just like a common fade for like a certain <laughs> editing software. And he was like totally making a big deal about nothing. But it's like in a movie that's this ambiguous and this potent with potential for meaning you can easily kind of stroll down a a path that is not there um you know in those situations make me roll my eyes but this film is jam-packed with meaning uh that you can really take any scene and extrapolate a whole series of connections to the themes like death time being misunderstood human connection all that stuff there's it's just so full of things you could talk about with almost every scene But what really makes this series of reviews transcendent is the way that they are released. The first episode came out in December 2014, and the second episode came out just after it in January of 2015. Then the third episode came out a few months later in April 2015, and the fourth episode came out a few months later, uh, even after that, in, in July of 2015. And when you're watching these all back to back, they just seem like a normal YouTube series. You know, they kind of have a similar tone and they're just going and it didn't actually hit me until the fifth episode that I should be even pay attention that to how much time is passing in between these because they review the film in chronological order, literally going scene by scene and breaking down every single scene. And episode four ends just past the halfway point of the film. Part five came out two whole years later after part four in June of 2017. Oh, it's just <laughs> like the movie itself. YMS set out to complete the ambitious task of reviewing this entire film in detail, and time just started to slip away. YMS even points that out, lamenting the fact that this movie review has been impossible to complete among all the other work he has, and the fact that each video takes so much labor to produce. The real synecdoche of it all is the fact that he still hasn't finished the series. There is no episode six. There is still runtime left to analyze. YMS is an active YouTube channel. They just, he just did Barbenheimer. You know, maybe one day he'll come back and finish the series. But I think if he truly understands this movie, then he'll find it more fitting not to. (laughs) I, I mean, 
I empathize for sure. Um, not just with the project getting away from you, but the idea of um, this movie just being a slog to get through. I mean, it is, I think that it is very interesting to think about. I think there's a lot to discuss and everything. I certainly enjoyed it more watching it the first time than I did watching Vertigo the first time. But I think Vertigo is a much better looking film. Something that is like the costuming, the sets, yeah. the composition of shots, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the montage uh, of, of Scotty driving in circles down like roads in San Francisco. All of that is so aesthetically just appealing. And there's so much to like glean just from that. The color choices and stuff. This movie is so uh, dang Kaufman-esque. So all <laughs> bringing grays and blues that it's just not, it's just not fun to watch. So I, I, you know, I don't envy him trying to put this on. And I mean, it's impressive he made it as far as he did. So. It's legendary. I really recommend it that anybody who's seen this movie go watch those because they're great. Um, and the fact that they kind of live out the plot of Synecdoche, New York as well is just the cherry on top. All right, I got a bunch of things to talk about. Uh, first of all, MacArthur, the MacArthur grant that Caden uh, uh, Catard wins is a real grant. It is uh, $800,000. They give it out to roughly 20 to 30 people every year wow um and it's uh like i think it's five installments over the course of five years or something like that so it's not all at once um there's lots and lots of people that won over a thousand people have won macarthur grants so they started i scrolled through the list of names i looked up famous macarthur grant recipients and i didn't recognize a single person <laughs> on there um it's possible i've recognized some of their work you know that they've done um whether before or after they've received the grant but uh none of the names stood out were to any me. of them podcasters uh, i don't know i don't know could, we could be the first we could be the first <laughs> it's true <laughs> i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> um john malkovich actually played biff loman uh willie loman's son in the 1985 version of death of a salesman so another little kaufman connection nice right there nice you know like that one um and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's last name, Cotard, is a reference to the Cotard delusion or Cotard syndrome, also known as nihilistic or negation delusion. It's a rare neuropsychiatric disorder in which a person believes they are dead, do not exist, are decaying, or have lost their blood or internal organs. So, very appropriate to Cotard. The one thing that separates Cotard from, like, a, uh, what, what's that phrase? Um... Hemophilia, not hemophilia. Um, hypochondriac. When you're when you're like constantly, you think you're constantly hypochondriac. Sick. Yeah, hypochondriac uh, is that he actually is sick constantly. He constantly has to get new, new <laughs> pills to take. So, um, there's a couple other things about the words that are chosen, which I think is very interesting. For example, uh, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary defines "sedecticky" as a figure of speech by which a part is put for the whole, as fifty sail for fifty ships. The whole, po- whole for a part as society for high society, the species for the genus as uh, cutthroat for assassin, the genus for the species as creature for a man, or the name of the material for the thing made as boards for stage. So it's sort of a, uh, it's, it's, the term is like a, it's a fancy way of saying fractal or, uh, you know, part of his whole or a, a piece representing a whole. Right, right. Uh, the example I saw was like, uh, you know, instead of saying, you could say like Cleveland beat, uh, you know, Kansas City this weekend. And you're right. not actually talking about the entire city fighting the other entire city. You're talking about the sports teams. Uh, the, the name there being the synecdoche for the whole uh, okay. team. 
That's good. That's a good example. The, the name next to the buzzer of Adele's apartment reads Capgrass. Uh, given the subject of the film, a man has actors play the real people in his life. This is almost certainly a reference to a, the psychological phenomenon known as Capgrass delusion, where the sufferer believes that everyone in his or her life has been replaced with an identical-looking imposter. Yeah, we're really going into all the delusions. Yeah, we. Um, I, th I think. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, Kaufman got stuck in the seas there. <laughs> in the medical dictionary, yeah, just yeah, <laughs> only made it to the page uh, to the seas. Yeah, this was a little. This is a little bit about like uh, just a little detail in the film that I think is interesting. The article that Caden is reading in the doctor's waiting room about his wife is titled "It's Good to Be Adele." The intro paragraph reads: Six months ago. Adele was underappreciated housewife in eastern New York. Stuck in a dead-end marriage to a slovenly, ugly-faced loser, Adele Lack had big dreams for her and her then four-year-old daughter, Olivia. That's when her paintings got small. I mean, so. you talk about uh, people winning, you know, uh, prestigious awards like the MacArthur Grant. Give this guy, this, give this journalist the Pulitzer Prize for uh, really investigating what kind of uh dead-end marriage she was in and really nailing the description exactly. of Caden with slovenly ugly face loser <laughs> pretty specific um i i was so unsure about this because at this point he had appeared on the television he had appeared like uh he was like sort of in the um the therapist's book right uh, everything that he was reading was like also about his life so it was so confusing about to like whether this was real or not um, yeah and apparently i, guess I felt was. the exact I I same way sure. i felt the exact same yeah. way where it was like when your ex-girlfriend's life is impossibly good after you like that's that's super painful so it was yes. like he's reading in the magazine oh of course she's living the she's a celebrity now he can't even get away from it it's not like he's on facebook you know what i mean right. like he's he's literally in the doctor's waiting room and she's there like on the cover crazy okay well that is going to bring us to the end of our conversation on synecdoche new york as we do at the end of every episode of apple chat we'll now deliver our ratings i'm gonna go first i'm gonna okay. give this movie a new therapist one that will actually help you instead of just selling you books uh you know this these <laughs> things are not necessarily true and you could work to change your outlook on life and not did you so notice visible. that she was answering his questions before yes she's cutting him he, off he would finish saying them yes that <laughs> frustrated me so much <laughs> uh, so funny dude okay joey what rating do you want to give this film i give this movie this movie gets a rating and that movie's rating gets a rating and that movie's ratings rating gets a rating and that movie's ratings ratings rating gets a movie it's a, a rating and that movie's ratings 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 rating gets a rating and that movie's ratings 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 gets a movie and that movie's ratings 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 gets a movie get a get a rating and that movie's ratings 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 gets a rating excellent very good hope you like i love it okay uh that's gonna bring us to the end of our discussion and our ratings and everything about charlie kaufman um i think we're gonna make the promise now so we can hold ourselves to it that we'll um have a discussion about kind of what we've learned about kaufman we'll do that on a different episode so you can uh kind of get our kaufman-esque debrief um at some point yeah i definitely need a debrief after all this yeah definitely i want to remember the good times <laughs> with kaufman i want to go back to john malkovich so um so yeah that's coming but um not necessarily before this next thing, right, Joey? What's next on Apple? That's Chat? right. 
<laughs> Next, we are doing Black Klansman. Excellent. I've been looking forward to this one. And maybe a guest, right? I think we were planning a guest, potentially, maybe. Uh, yes, I'm going to go Okay, <laughs> I think so. Uh, we'll figure that out uh, before we record it, I'm sure. Definitely. You can subscribe to what... You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. AppleChat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at AppleChat, and even our email address, AppleChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, I think I'm dying. My last wish is for you to consider (laughs) listening to (laughs) AppleChat. And then it'll be nothingness. Uh, <laughs> now that's going to do it for this episode. For Apple Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.